0: Hello
1: and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 45, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Robbie Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Welcome back, Joe.
2: I'm back again. Now, you've been uh,
1: doing a lot of interesting shopping recently, I take it?
2: Uh, Yeah, I've been uh, shopping for a futon for a very (laughs) special day for us. Result. Retro- <laughs> <laughs> a retro hour futon. Yeah, a retro hour futon. Keep, well, keep your eyes peeled.
1: This is going to be a bit of a tradition. Ravi and I started this last year doing a Let's Play video at Christmas, and uh, we thought, now we do the podcast, it's going to be a retro hour crew doing it this year.
2: Yeah, yeah hoping to do it in my new games room at my house, so show that off a little bit.
1: We just um, realised we've got nowhere to sit.
3: Yeah, I realised. <laughs> it's like, I've got
2: a bean bag, so... Uh, I'm gonna have to get a futon or something. So you know, that's the dream at the moment. <laughs> and we'd
3: just like to mention Paul Kitching as well, who's joined the team. Our graphics guy.
1: Yeah, Paul's the guy who's done our uh, logo and stuff. Like, and you know, the intro to if you're watching this on YouTube, the animated intro at the beginning he did when we first launched. Yeah, you don't want to see
3: mine. It would be like Microsoft
1: Paint. So we're well,
3: very good. We've got Paul going all the way
1: back. <laughs> I did the first logo for the retro Hour. Do you remember that? Yeah, that didn't look great. Yeah, <laughs> 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 actually, it was on SoundCloud the other day and I thought, should I go back and like retroactively change them all to like the the later logo? But yeah, I couldn't be bothered. But. <laughs> so, welcome to the Team Paul officially, though. So, that means hopefully more graphics and stuff now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, of course, the show would not be possible without your very generous support as well. Uh, some amazing donations through the website, theretrohour.com this week, including uh, Tim Daleman. Garen Tungate.
3: Uh, Michael Wynn.
1: And Yosef Vermosi,
3: And there's a couple of names we recognise there. Garen is from RGDS podcast.
1: Yeah, we, we were on one of their episodes, weren't we? Yeah, with Garen. Yeah, yeah, we right. were. Lovely guy. And uh, we really appreciate all your donations, guys. Obviously, anything you put into the show all goes back into the running. Let's just continue doing this. Let's Joe buy futons for exactly. <laughs> YouTube videos. <laughs> and uh, if you want to make a donation, all you've got to do is click on the PayPal link on the front page of the RetroHour.com. Now, I imagine a lot of people may have read this week's show description and been slightly confused when they saw that we had Paul Hollywood on the show.
3: Yeah, no, we're not <laughs> doing the bake-off. Joe was looking forward to some cakes. I was like, oh, you know
2: what? I'm going to ask him how to make the perfect cherry bake Well, <laughs> Now,
1: this is Paul Hollywood, the guy behind legendary games like TFX, Epic, Robocop 3. He worked for Sony as well. He had a launch title for the PS3. This guy's got, you know decades of video game production behind him and he even started like back on the uh you know the Sinclair Spectrum in his early days
3: yeah and he was even doing like m- his flight simulators were so cool mm-hmm. and so like advanced that the military were using them yeah. for application as well so you know this guy's really cutting edge
1: much more exciting than Cherry Bakewell's yeah <laughs> <laughs> but this is going to be really interesting um you know pretty much tracing the history of video games through the 80s and the 90s up to the current day he's working on virtual reality now as well isn't he so. oh yeah
3: and some you know, massive VR projects that mm-hmm. Facebook are jealous of. So yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's so. big.
1: Paul Hollywood is going to be on the Retro Hour in about half an hour from now. Let's get into this week's news stories then. And uh, every time you're on, we talk about Virtual Fighter for some reason.
2: <laughs> I just don't know. I just don't know what it is. You know, maybe Virtual Fighter is drawn to me. I'm drawn to Virtual Fighter. You're not a
1: fan though, are you? Uh,
2: it's all right. Mm-hmm. I, I, it makes me laugh. But you know, I'm not not massive on Virtual Fighter. But yeah. Uh, so a hacker named uh, Jed Hudson. Uh, he's recently discovered that there's more unused virtual fighter characters within the game's data. Mm-hmm. Uh, first things first, what baffles me is people are still trolling, going through all the data from these old arcade games from the early 90s. It's and like stuff. 25 years old, this game. Yeah, it's it? like, you just wake up one day and go, you know what I'm going to do? I've got to get this really old arcade game. Simpsons Arcade. I'm going to see, you know, have a look through there, what's going on what in there. What
1: secrets lay inside Yeah, it.
2: but uh, it, really interesting discoveries, though. Um, several characters, um, which as you were saying earlier on, look like direct ports to Tekken, mm-hmm. which is quite interesting. Well, the
1: interesting thing is, I mean, everyone kind of knew it was Siba, Siba or something, it was yeah. the one that was kind of discovered a while back. Yeah. And no, you know, he, he was an unused character, but there is more. And what they say is like four of them they found in this?
2: Yeah, so one of them they found is a military man named Jeff. Yeah. Um, now, if you look at the video, he looks just like P-Jack from Tekken 2 onwards, mm-hmm. uh, Prototype Jack. So like it looks exactly the same, exact same character model. Luckily, they play completely differently. Uh, but then the next one you've got is a bloke called Akira. Yeah. Who plays and looks just like Kazuya.
1: And what's really interesting is, I mean, we found this on uh, Um It's like a Sega blog. And you, you, there's actually the top comment in this. Uh, it says, that, you know, the, the guy who was behind Tekken actually worked on Virtua Fighter first. Yeah,
2: which I didn't know.
1: Yeah, I wasn't aware of that either. But then... It seems a, a bit suspicious. Apparently, this character is like you know, it appears in Tekken and is nearly a one hundred percent copy yeah. of the early version of, uh, of Akira. So
2: I wonder if there's any sort of connection with the guy leaving and then working on Tekken. It's weird
1: how they leave the code in there as well. Especially, you think you know, in cartridges, memory was quite limited. You think, yeah, They'd get rid of
2: all that, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, it's, it's bizarre, like how stuff. You know, it's always like interesting to find out why at the last minute something was is pulled from it. Like. Clearly, you know there's a whole. The video here is the whole. It's functioning. It's fully functioning. So why was it bored? Yeah. You know what's the story behind that?
1: Like the code's kind of in there, but they've just disabled it.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. weird. Hot yeah. coffee.
1: But um, yeah, if you want to find out more about this, we'll pop the links in the show notes at theretrohour.com. You found a fan of Castlevania, Ravi?
3: No, I've never actually. Well, I've I've, I've I had a go on it, but I've even. never got into it you know? even.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I Call yourself a, a retro gamer. I played on Halloween, like I think everyone did, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> everyone had to play that game on Halloween. I
3: think it was a bit too um, American for me, or J- Japanese. I, I well, it's a NES game, wasn't it. it? Yeah, it's Ness, you want to be a Japanese game.
2: game. So, funny enough, once again, you know, I'm I'm big on my Japanese and American mm-hmm. console stuff. So, I'm a big fan of Castlevania. So.
3: I've heard good things. You know, AVG Enza was on about how good it is. Yeah, exactly.
2: So, yeah, they've remade it in the Unreal Engine, haven't they, Dan? Yeah,
1: which, it looks great. And Unreal's obviously, you know, bringing these classic games into, like, this, you know, fully updated, high-resolution, you know, 3D environments. But it's... um, it is kind of a side-scrolling platformer still, from what they've done to really updated the graphics. And it looks yeah. gorgeous if you watch the video. I think it's only the first level they've done so far.
2: Yeah, it looks like it's maybe the first two levels, because I'm pretty sure I saw the first boss battle in there about okay. halfway through the video. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it looks really nice. I think the whip animation could do with a bit of work, personally. I think that looks a bit odd. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's fully playable as well. You can download it as well from the website. Uh, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, it just looks really nice and really smooth.
1: And what I like about, you know, you look at the top of the uh, the screen as well, you know, kind of the info bar. That's yeah. directly lifted from the original. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well? They've not, they've
2: not changed it <laughs> at all, it's exactly the same in 8-bit, which I think is brilliant.
1: You know what with this, I've heard it's not very well optimized at the moment, because oh, it's quite it? early, and you need yeah. a pretty beefy PC to get like yeah. 30 frames a second yeah. on it. But um, what's interesting is, from what I've seen, it's not endorsed by Nintendo, huh. which generally <laughs> runs you into problems with Nintendo. Yeah. So hopefully, it'll still be up yeah. at the time of releasing yeah, this yeah, episode. Good luck to them guys. <laughs> well, they've started a Kickstarter as well to port the whole thing. So
2: <laughs> they want
1: to raise seventy-two thousand dollars. Yeah. So far, they've raised one hundred ninety-eight, and there's only like ten days to go. So.
3: Oh dear. Well, it's it's quite amazing, this kind of Unreal Engine remakes. I've I've just got a little list here, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, they've done Mario on it, Arena yeah. of Time. Yeah. They've done, you know, Sonic. There's even a Pong remake in the
2: <laughs> <laughs> Unreal
3: Engine. So it's pretty cool that fans can kind of make these 3D versions if they've got enough skills. Oh,
2: yeah, a lot of love goes into them and stuff like that. But like Dan says, there's always that kind of worry with nintendo that they're going to shut them down going to do a cease and desist kind
1: of thing yeah i spotted this on a couple of blogs and obviously we've talked about it now so it might get a bit more attention but it's kind of the fact that the kickstarter hasn't been that big so far kind of suggests it maybe flew under the radar a little bit yeah but um it might might be on the radar now so
2: i can can almost i would put money on the fact if it was to raise the seventy two thousand, nintendo would just shut it down
1: and if it if it's our fault i apologize (laughs) (laughs) but download it while you can it is it looks really cool actually now this is crazy
3: Absolutely crazy.
1: (laughs) The world's largest arcade cabinet costs only $100,000. I love two.
3: (laughs) And it looks absolutely giant. It's like 14 foot high. and It's made it into the Guinness Book of Records. Um, Looking at it, I'd say, how big do you think that monitor
2: is? It's 80 inches. 80 inches? Yeah, you go down a little bit, it says it's 80 inches. Jesus. (laughs) That's one big monitor on there.
3: So you have to be quite tall stand on the
2: ground and reach up for the buttons like you're a, a midget in an arcade. Well, you wouldn't even reach 14. Well, <laughs> the whole thing's 14 feet, so I'd imagine that's about seven feet up, six feet up.
1: The guy looks like some of the borrowers, though, doesn't he? Yeah. In the pictures, it's like a little tiny guy, it looks like, on a seat holding up with a joystick. What but... makes
2: me laugh is he's clearly playing some sort of like gauntlet game and he's using a trackball.
1: All right. Oh, yeah. I missed on the trackball. <laughs> the trackball's at like the size of his head.
2: Yeah. It's a 16 inch trackball, which
1: I think is brilliant. My word. It's like a football. The only problem, you know, if you've got something like this, it's like, where are you going to put that?
3: It wouldn't fit in my house.
2: <laughs> and I've got like, quite a big house as well.
1: Yeah. Just tell your girlfriend,
3: I'm going to get a small arcade. It's just going to come yeah. in. I just want to em- empty the living room. Finally
2: convinced the missus that you're allowed an arcade cabinet just the one
1: <laughs> might as well go all out <laughs> yeah <laughs> again though no, this is another one of those things obviously been done just like you know a bit of humor behind it and all yeah. that as well but it's cool when uh, you know stuff like this ends up making it into the guinness book of records and that kind
2: of thing and what would make me laugh is that they just like mass produced it and you could just go on a website and buy it <laughs> like there were several of them for sale
3: <laughs> <laughs> well even the coins he's got a big So I'm watching the video and he's putting in big 25 cents and it's, like,
1: really cool. Yeah, you wouldn't want to play that when you're drunk. You'd have some bad dreams after that, wouldn't you? Now, we've talked about um, this FPGA accelerator for the Amiga, the um, vampire that makes the Amiga, like, 100 times faster. Yeah, it's crazy fast. Now, the Atari ST is getting some love.
3: Yeah, and they're saying this might revive the ST scene. So uh, we're actually showing some love for the ST, guys. Now... The uh, guys at Apollo team who create this are asking for ST experts to contact them because they're not so hot on the ST. They're saying here that they could use the um, SAGA chipset, which is basically the advanced kind of RTG graphics chipset that they're using for the Amiga. They can convert that to the Atari chipset. So... You'll possibly have HDMI out on the Atari. Very, very fast clock speeds on there. Micro SD support, all on
1: this cheap card. Well, the thing about it is, as well, because it's FPGA. I mean, those chips you can like, you know, you can put anything on there. I guess. Yeah, yeah. You you could, you could essentially do a
3: Mega Drive version Mm -hmm. of this. Stick it in a Mega Drive. HDMI out. Make your games 100, 100 times, times faster. Fasty, yeah, <laughs> like...
1: 60 million color games, and that on the Mega Drive. But... <laughs> yeah, totally. So give I, it but... blast processing. Yeah, <laughs> that, that is blast processing. They should call it that, shouldn't they? Real yeah, blast n- processing. Nuclear <laughs> blast <prob. laughs> Yeah, but it's cool. I mean, yeah, I, I've looked on the as we on the forums, then and Kipper is talking on there, who, yeah. uh, who hasn't quit this battle of rumors at the moment. No, and um, I think
3: it's good that they're expanding out as well because yeah, the Amiga world's small. If you mm-hmm. get into the Atari world, that could be good. Even get into other. 68k kind of machines the old max uh, and stuff as well The old max yeah yeah. Yeah.
1: so that's awesome though the fact that you know it's such a versatile product that it can hold any like operating system stuff on it as well
3: hey maybe they might do something so you could put the atari memory into the amiga and convert them and i think that's like
1: like crossing the streams in ghostbusters you don't want to do that (laughs) (laughs) now uh, you're a big fan of video game music ravi
3: oh yeah definitely
1: Tell us about this guy, then, who's uh, created his own video about video <laughs> game music styles.
3: I don't know if everyone will like this. It's, it's pretty weird. But um, this guy's kind of representing every genre of video game music. So he sat there with his keyboard, and he's done, like, Puzzle Zone or Annoying Aqua Zone. Do you want to hear a bit? <laughs> yeah, All go right, for it. Is. Which one's this?
1: <laughs> so this is a menu theme. The menu theme. You press Start. Unskippable cutscene.
2: <laughs> That's very, very reminiscent of Zelda, like Ocarina of Time, Majora's Mask. Yeah,
1: yeah. And these are not off actual games; these it are just kind of like, like here, yeah, yeah, yeah
2: just, yeah. just kind of from his brain.
1: A tutorial you're forced to complete? Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's got the vibe. You did it. The evil boss appears. <laughs> <laughs> Water level that everyone hates. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is really cool though. His name's uh, Seth Everman. And uh, yeah, he does some intense, intensive staring into the camera. Yeah, while he's it's doing quite this
3: weird because he's got a shaven head. Mm. And he's got really intense eyebrows. And he's not staring <laughs> at the keys where he's playing. He's just staring at you while he's
2: playing. <laughs> it. I love that. It's intense
1: eyebrows. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he's staring through your soul in this video. Yeah. Isn't yeah. It? But it's, I think he has really captured like your mini racing game.
2: Yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know, you think, oh, what's that of like Mario Kart? But you know, they're obviously yeah, it
2: reminded me of F Zero straight away. It. <laughs> but
1: it remind it makes you think though. A lot of game musicians must get told that, like, okay, to start of a race, and they've heard it of so many other games, it must yeah. they all kind of sound like the same or thing. Or they do yeah. it in
3: the same key maybe yeah you know they've all kind of got a boss fight key
1: what's in movies are the same as well there's kind of you know orchestral bits for yeah, you know yeah. it's i suppose there's a lot of inspiration from uh, other titles out there with uh making music i imagine yeah. but but for a
3: good laugh watch this video because i'd say about three quarters through you'll be really laughing yeah. <laughs> and awkward <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah you show yeah. me i was like what's this and then and I was after, <laughs> yeah a minute or two uh now we don't talk about the Apple II all that much on this show. Um, system I've never used, I must admit. But I know, you know, everyone we interview, particularly from America, they all cite the Apple II has been like, you know, the big system out there that got everyone into coding in the late 70s and early 80s. Yeah, um, yeah,
3: that seemed to be the computer there that could also play games and, you know... A lot well, the first one, really. Yeah, a lot of piracy groups came from there as well. well it Midwest came out in pirates.
1: 1977 It came out. So, I mean, you know, it was among the first, like you know, mainstream at-home computers. And it's got a new operating system, despite the fact that it's 39 years old.
3: Yeah, so um, the last operating system was released 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. So they've done a modern update, and this is basically a guy who's been... it's, It's called ProDOS, and he's been creating it, but he says it's really hard to create because he has to fit every little bit of information in there. So he's been, you know, efficiently coding for a few years now. And the reason he's done this is actually for preserving the old disks. Okay. Because the old operating system's not compatible with the uh, newer Apple right. disks, which were those fat, you know, floppy disks. Oh, the
1: 5 and 20, 5.25 inch. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. wasn't
3: compatible. So now this one brings it into compatibility and now people can archive. They can also do some kind of weird USB drive transfer thing on there <laughs> Pretty as well. Much exactly
2: what the public have been demanding recently for the Apple II. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> but, you know, there are so many, like, old machines that you can add stuff like USB yeah. and Ethernet to, you know, via cartridges and all that. And obviously, it all needs support. But again, like you said, the fact that it is a 39-year-old machine, yeah. you must be running up to the limitations of it, you know. You'd yeah. imagine everything would have been done on it by now, but...
3: But, well, he's saying, you know, his discs are actually rotting and deteriorating, <laughs> so he needs to get this like archived. And it's a lot of programs that he's coded himself as well, so it's stuff you can never kind of get back. And the last statement, I love it, the last line, the amount of people uh, this upgrade benefits is relatively small in the world.
1: So, But, so, you know, yeah. <laughs> I think even, I imagine corporate use for this kind of thing. You know, there must be companies out there being, that have been going a long time and maybe have some of their really old stuff archived in, like, old floppy disks and stuff like that, but probably have either had, you know, no way of getting it off those old Yeah, yeah, there could
3: and, be, you know, national secrets and stuff like that. Well, yeah. need to be archived. So. We've,
1: we've talked about NASA and the governments and stuff like that still running yeah. on, like, computers in <laughs> the
3: 50s and 60s. So. Exactly, yeah. We yeah. need to update the nuclear arsenal. <laughs> Get the uh, <laughs> new ProDOS. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if you want to find out more about that, if you are an Apple II fan, we'll show that in the show notes at theretrohow.com. Right, thank you for checking out episode number 45, Uh, We'll be out again next Friday. little treat for the weekend, as always, downloadable from our website, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube. And now, for the next half an hour or so, here he is, the guy behind legendary games like TFX, Epic Robocop 3, uh, worked for Digital Image Design back in the day, Mr. Paul Hollywood on the Retro Hour for the next 30 minutes. And we'll see you next Friday.
3: Ciao. See ya.
1: You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's time to welcome this week's very special guest, Paul Hollywood. Uh, good evening. Now, I will just say, um, this is nothing to do with baking. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no no um, pies or puts today, sorry.
1: That that guy must be the bane of your life in Google search results, is he?
0: Yeah, I mean, I must say, I was the original. Um, He's he's a a charlatan following in my footsteps.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But we are going to talk about your uh, amazing career in video games tonight. And uh, I thought it would be quite interesting to start all the way right back at the beginning. What's your kind of earliest computer or gaming memory then? Where did it all start? Oh,
0: That's uh, that's an interesting one. I think the earliest experiences uh, for myself, the ones that are really embedded in my mind, was... um, Probably in the very uh, early eighties, uh, maybe in the late seventies, actually, when um, I, I lived in Widnes, and there was a large supermarket called the uh, the hypermarket in Widnes, and outside the, the front of the store was uh, a battle zone unit, and. Every week I'd go um, with my mother to, while well, she did the the big shop of the week, and uh, she'd give me a handful of tempis and set me out in front of the battle zone unit. And I would be totally immersed. I'd have my head stuck in. I don't know if you remember, they had like this sort of uh, moulded plastic visor that you'd stick your face in. Oh, yeah. And it was, um, you know, it was vector graphics, you know, uh, line drawn. Um, and it was a really immersive experience. It really left an impression on me and it was it was very immersive it, it reminds me now of, of virtual reality units that are out at the moment uh, and i would get lost in there for a good hour maybe it cost me like me about 40p um and i would you know sort of get lost didn't particularly do very well but that didn't matter just bombing around this virtual environment in my tank with the two joysticks moving left and right you know that's that's where my love started and i think um I was about uh, nine or ten years old, and obviously, with this, uh, what was coming into a bit of an obsession, and I think seeing that they could save a bit of money on 10p's, um, my mum and dad bought me uh, a ZX Spectrum 48k, mm-hmm. and that's where I started my um, sort of career, if you like, into uh, game development, um, playing games obviously on, on, the, on the ZX Spectrum, but also dabbling around a little bit with. Uh, basic writing a few simple programs myself and seeing how it was easy to create uh, your own experiences albeit you know quite rudimentary for my skills and my age um on on the system and obviously at that time we're with the 8-bit machines, and you know so a lot of my friends had other Spectrums, and um, we'd have uh, computer clubs. I think I was um, I was with the uh, with the Scouts at the time, and uh, we'd have like Saturday get-togethers where we'd bring in and you'd you'd lump her in like a TV, and you'd bring in your computer, and you'd sit and you'd game swap and you'd play, and it was a great way of um, you know feeding off other people's enthusiasm at the time. Obviously, there was always the the, the Commodore 64 gang and the and the Spectrum gang a little bit. A rivalry there but you know it's always um, it's always just for the pure enjoyment of of gaming
3: well uh, it's really interesting you started with battle zone because that is the kind of first like simulator i guess
0: yeah absolutely i think that's where i mean everything that i've done in in my career even up to up to the present day um has always been focused on a simulation and something where you can immerse yourself in uh, an environment or um, an experience which you know is is um, akin to the real world so it it was it was rudimentary 3d graphics at the time and it was that um portray of a 3d environment that really you know seeded me and you know, everything that i did in, in, in starting off in my early career at dislimit uh, design was um 3d based so it was it was serendipity really, you know, that I managed to find a, a job, a career uh, at that age, which allowed me to pursue um, an, an interest uh, and almost a passion in 3D graphics.
1: Well, you mentioned something really interesting there as well about the fact you used to have these like you know school get-togethers and computer clubs and that, which I think you know will resonate to a lot of kids that kind of grew up in the 80s and 90s. In particular, it was uh, you know before the internet really came around, that was how you kind of got together and learned about them. And these these machines seemed really new and magical at the time, I, I guess.
0: Absolutely, it was you know it was it was a brave new world, and it, it was it, it wasn't necessarily the LAN party, but it was because you know, these games and these machines weren't interconnected. But you'd move around from from your machine over to say, some else's uh, machine and you'd play their games and have a look at what they'd recently got that week and it was a it was a great way to share and come together with uh, you know people who had the same passions
1: i know a lot of games you've worked on have been like you know flight simulators did you have an interest in like did you ever want to be a pilot when you were a kid was that ever a dream or something
0: um <laughs> no no it yeah. was um it was not high up on my agenda to be um uh, to be a jet pi- uh, fighter pilot but it was um It was actually, the the first game that I worked on was um, F-29 Retaliator. So when I started working at Digital Image Design, I said I was 17, it was 1990, um, and Martin Kemright, Phil Olsop and Russell Payne had had set up um, Digital Image. Design. Uh, Basically the guys had moved over from Rowan Software, where they'd been working on the Falcon games, and they set up and created and uh, published F-29 Retaliator on the Amiga, which was a fantastic success for them, and you got to remember at this time it was still bedroom development. You know, it was still these guys in, in in a room working on something that was a passion, and they they created a very compelling arcade flight simulator. But the what that, what they had was um, a very powerful three D engine, a software three D engine, obviously at the time, uh, which allowed them to do some you know stunning graphics uh, for that for that period. Um, and I, I when I started, um, I came on when they were converting F29 onto um, a, a DOS, onto the PC. So I was um, tasked with up the graphics, um, if you could say that was possible at the time. So I was... Um, so I started um, creating 3D models, creating props and creating environments in this virtual world and it, it, was, um, it was a very exciting time. It was actually more fun for me making the, the artwork for these games than it was actually playing the games. So um,
3: Digital Image Design were kind of a, a like a flight simulator group that um, had games published by Ocean as well. What was the uh, relationship with
0: Ocean there? I think it was um, it was it was a very close relationship. So, Ocean were the uh, the publisher um, of Digital image Design games. Also, Ocean owned um, I think it was a twenty five percent stake in Digital image Design as well. And it was a really good relationship, and it was very good for us in terms of developers because we we would sort of say to Ocean, right, we're working on this game, and they would go. Cool. Here's some money. You go away and make that game. And uh, unlike um, later on in the industry, where things became more business minded, it was still very fluid development. So we would like pitch up a few months later and go, "Here's a demo. This is what we're working on." They'd be like, "Hey, that looks really cool. Here's some more money." And there wasn't any real sort of um, deadlines or milestones or meetings where we had to deliver certain things. It was just when the game. We were we were happy with the game was ready, then Ocean would uh, publish it for us. I know around that time
1: as well. Ocean, like early nineties, they were like you know one of the biggest game companies in the world, weren't they? As well, I mean, I mean stuff like the Batman games, a lot of those movie licenses as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I myself when I was in playing my zx spectrum it was ocean games that really sort of um stood out in my mind um in you know like you say the, the batman games and the, the movie licenses but yeah they had a massive catalog of uh, games and a massive throughput so i mean I'm, a lot of games that i played were, were ocean games so actually coming into the industry and, and working for ocean was was almost like a, a dream come true um, were you involved in any of the military
3: simulators? Because I know they did a military laser design simulation. Yes,
0: yeah, we did. So, um, jumping ahead a bit, we um, made a game called uh, EF Two Thousand, and EF Two Thousand was uh, it was a flight simulator based on the as yet off plan um, Eurofighter, which you know wasn't in service at the time and it was just getting uh, sort of coming into production, and we created this. Uh, a very advanced flight simulator. It was actually one of the, fir- if not the first games, to use the newly created 3D accelerated graphics cards for PCs. So we jumped on that to really maximize the, the visual quality of the product and uh, really take it as a step change up in 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 this sort of immersion and the the quality of the game. So much so and so accurate was our simulation. that The RAF and NATO um, approached us uh, to develop a desktop training solution for the pilots who were training for um, using the new Eurofighter. So basically what they were doing, they had a very complicated um, control mechanism with the the right-hand controller, which was controlling the thrust. But on the top of the controller, there was a number of buttons which you used to do the missile lock-on, target select, and deployment of uh, weapons. And to practice this dexterity with the left hands, they actually sent the pilots up into the sky, which cost tens of thousands of pounds per run, so they could practice these maneuvers. And we created, using off-the-shelf peripherals that were available at the time, we produced a, a, a desktop version um, which was packaged up in a flight unit and shipped out uh, to various places around, I think it was, um, Boltland's war, um, at that time. And, um, yeah, it was uh, used extensively as a training tool.
1: I imagine making, like, an accurate simulator, though, because flight sims are so many calculations and, you know, you've got to get the physics just right. How do you guys do your research into that, then?
0: Well, um, obviously, at at that time, there was no such thing as the internet. Mm -hmm. So we had to, you know, we'd we'd look into libraries, we'd look into research um, papers. We would get as much information as we could. um, But it was all basically hinged upon the the accuracy of our 3D engine. So once we, um, you know, had a very accurate uh, modeling of the real world in terms of uh, polar coordinates in terms of the 3d space. And then mapping onto that, the physical engine of the way that the, the airplane moves, and the way that it reacts to the control input. So it was like a subset. It was, it was like an evolution over time. You know, we didn't just get there overnight. We did EF2000 um, was, the, was, the, was the child of a game called TFX, which in itself was a child of EF2000. So it was over time that we developed these um, accurate simulations. Well, going back a little
1: bit, I mean, one game that I remember was really groundbreaking that you guys worked on was uh, Robocop 3. And that you could say that was a very early FPS, really, looking back at it now. I mean, did it feel like it was really groundbreaking and something new at the time?
0: Absolutely, we we were um, we were very ambitious with RoboCop three. It was it was um, a great opportunity, and again we we touched on Ocean and the amounts of the licenses that they acquired and then distributed games based on those licenses. And one of them was for RoboCop three and. And they came to us with the um, with the license, and they wanted to do something different. They wanted to do. Obviously, they'd had a lot of success with the first two RoboCop games, which are, which were side scroller shooters. Um, and they wanted to do something in in 3D using the 3D engine that um, D.I.D had, which was called Didlib. Um, and we you know we ran at that as hard as we could, and we had a script for the film. We didn't have any real visual sort of materials to base it on but we had the script so we let our imaginations run wild and we we looked at the different acts in the film and we developed um what well, you, well, you could say there were, there were almost three different distinct games in one. So you had uh, a driving section where you were, you, were in the, you were in your car as Robocop and you were driving around the city and you were taking out uh, perps by, by knocking them off the road or by shooting at them. And you had a flying section because in, in the film uh, Robocop had a jetpack. So obviously that was quite easy for us to take our flight sim experience and apply it to that part of the game. But yeah, the, um, the first-person shooter... And it it, it was um, groundbreaking. It, it was we came out just at the same time as Wolfenstein 3D. Mm-hmm. So Wolfenstein 3D gets the accolade as being the first first-person shooter game. But I think uh, we we were there, if not at the same time, um, with uh, RoboCop 3.
3: And it was amazing how many different elements you could just fit into that one game. It was like a complete package because the artwork was also really nice. You know, it was all really kind of. I feel that a lot of movie based games don't do the movies' justice, and this game did
0: yeah I mean at the time we went for a, a you know a proper narrative to the game it it had it followed the theme of obviously the script of the story you had cutaway sections where you had um, sort of um, stills of uh, there was we used the the news broadcasters as um, as the links in between the different sections you had very atmospheric music score in there I think is you know one of the most um you know, compelling parts of Robocop three was that that was the was the score behind it. But yeah, we wanted it to to feel like the movie. We wanted the users, the gamers, to actually think they were playing the movie. I remember around that time reading about Robocop
1: 3 in the magazines, and I remember a lot of them making like a really big deal about the virtually Ill- unbreakable piracy protection that you had on that game. There was even like a joystick kind of dongle you had to plug in before the game played, and it was, it was cracked pretty fast, though, wasn't it?
0: It was, yeah. Was it was, I surprised? mean, at that time, it was a, it was a real... A real problem for the publishers. They were, you know, there was, and, and, and I must admit to myself, I had, I you know, a number of C ninety cassette tapes when I was the uh, ZX Spectrum days, where you'd, you'd, you, know, you'd copy games, um, and it was, you know, in in a way, it was quite na- um, naive and innocent at the time. But as as the business got um, bigger and bigger, then, you know, the money became more of a factor. So. They were looking for more innovative ways to protect games. And as we were developing Robocop, the the guys had been in touch with... um I can't remember the company that, that made uh, the dongle at the moment but they said yeah we have a foolproof hardware solution for protecting the game we have this dongle that you can put into the uh, joystick port and um, you can't run the game unless you have this dongle um, yeah and I think it was uh, about two three days after we launched it got cracked so it was a bit of a, a bit of a white elephant but, that, that um, must have cost a lot I of th- money to pack that in as well a bit of hardware yeah I think I think it did yeah I'm, I'm not quite sure the, 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 the business uh, losses around that but But, yeah, it was was an interesting experiment in how you could protect games at that time.
3: You you must have had some
0: uh, quite powerful
3: hardware to develop these games.
0: Uh, What were you developing them on? Well, to be fair, we were actually developing them on the target platforms themselves. When I started, I was working on an Atari ST. I'll give you a little bit of insight. So to develop a, a 3D model to, and to render our environments using the didlip engine, we, we basically had a very low-end um, process for creating the artwork. So this would involve me designing uh, the, so let's, let, let's say, RoboCop's car. OK, so I would, I'd draw it out. I'd design it on a piece of paper. Then I'd take a bit of graph paper, which you remember from school, and I would draw out this vector graphic version of the car and then do three or four projections. And then I'd use the graph to plot a point in 3D space. And and I'd actually have to type into, on the Atari ST, on a TV as well. So I'm I'm quite surprised I've still got my eyesight as well, as good as it is. (laughs) But I'd actually type in uh, do point one, and then I'd give it an X, Y coordinate, so 10, 20, minus 30, and then I'd move on to the next point, so do point two. So you'd have like 100 of these do points that I'd I'd type in. These just put like a a point in space. It would be like dot to dot on your kind of TV. Absolutely, that was the next bit. So then, then I'd type in draw polygon. Between point one, between point two and point three, which would draw a triangle, and then I'd give it a colour. Now, at that time, we we only had 16 colours, but um, Russ Payne, who was the architect of DIDLIB, was very clever and he, he gave us colours in between. So he'd do a stipple fill between two colours. So I'd maybe have like a mid grey and a, and, a, and a dark grey, and then he'd give me a grey in between by doing a stipple fill. So I'd, I'd sort of pseudo. Um, light this object using these, these rudimentary colors and polygon fills, but then I'd have to work out which polygons you'd see in front of the other ones, and which ones would see behind. So it'd almost be, uh, yeah, dot, drawing dot to dot, but then um, a very complicated jigsaw puzzle that was sorted in, in Z-space. Um, so. Something like Robocop's car probably take me about two or three weeks to actually complete, so very labour-intensive, but at the end of the day, it produced a very fast piece of renderable software.
3: Yeah, it looked absolutely amazing. Now, yeah. another game that you worked on was Epic. Epic was delayed for quite a long time, um, well, in development, uh, but it came out eventually, and it was a really good kind of fit in on the Amiga for, uh, you know, we didn't have Wing Commander, or any of those kind of games. So Mm. it, it just slotted in really well.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was, like, that was yeah, a really, really fun game to work on. Um, and we, we sort of worked on, we were working on Robocop and we were working on Epic at the same time, as well as doing the uh, um, PC version of F29 Retaliator. So we had a number of different projects running at the same time. And I think that's one of the reasons why Epic was a little bit slow coming out. And we did like a number of uh, early demos and we got the press quite excited um, before we actually sort of went into the full production. So it did seem like there was a long time. Time between announcement and delivery, but it was a. I get it was a really nice um, holiday from doing the flight simulations, doing a space simulation, but still underpinning exactly exactly the same technology, the same engine. But we just had we could go to town on the visuals. You know, it's a lot more fantasy driven, uh, a lot more vivid colours, a lot more arcade action with flying around, and shooting other spaceships, and. Um, As a a sci-fi fan as well, it was it was a fantastic experience to work on that. And one of the things that we developed for Epic was a process that we we called uh, an intragen. So it was um, it was where we overlaid 3D models moving in space on top of a bitmap. So I don't even remember at the beginning of the game, you had this sequence where it told the story of the the uh, human armada leaving the dying planet and having to travel across space. And the Rexon Empire was uh, planning to attack. And there was all these wonderful sequences of spaceships flying through a space where actually they were just models drawn over a, a backdrop. And again, I think that was a really piece piece of um, software technology that we created at that time.
3: And uh, quite a lot of those spaceships kind of looked a bit Star Wars-y as well. <laughs>
0: I, I can tell you that we took inspiration from many different places. Uh, I think some of them looked a little bit like Battlestar Galactica. Some of them may have looked a little bit like Star Trek and Star Wars, but it was you know, at least 10% different to what was actually portrayed in those IPs. And yeah, they... I'm just making sure there's no lawyers listening <laughs> right now.
3: Well, I had an amazing soundtrack with uh, David Whitaker as well. I think that was a great choice.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from the onset with all of the games at DID, the, we understood that the music was—it wasn't just 25% of the review score. It really was part of the experience, and it really—and I remember sitting in my darkened bedroom myself playing video games, and you know, the audio would be really important to you know immerse you into the experience, and that was at the forefront of the development at DID
1: well around this time I mean you know you were doing cross
0: platform games I mean was it was
1: it kind of hard developing for like you know PC Atari and Amiga like around that
0: time yeah it's it was Distinct projects. Um, the code base between, if I remember correctly, is going back a, a little bit now. But I remember that the code base between the uh, the Atari ST and the Amiga uh, was was quite similar. We could reuse uh, a lot of the code, but the the PC was a, a, a different um, a different code base. So those um, PC conversions were um, very, you know, bespoke.
1: Well, TFX, um, you know, was obviously a huge game for you guys. And, uh, you know, that was really like, you know, kind of the next generation of flight sims around the mid-90s. What what engine was that based on then, and what what was the development behind that? How did that go?
0: Well, that was again, it was all based on the the same engine. So Didlib was developed and evolved over a ten year period. So as the the sort of core mechanics, the real sort of crux of the the drawing the polygons to the screen was done on the low end sixteen bit machines in the early nineties, and that sort of foundation meant that when we evolved it up to the pc and and the faster graphics cards in time then we already had a very fast um, base to the rendering and it meant that we could just overlay more and more visuals on on top and um, with uh, tfx we started um, playing about with uh, textured polygons which just took everything to a a whole new level of uh, realism at that time
1: was that a massive step then when like um Textured, you know, three D came in, and obviously, like you know, the, the PlayStation, everything came along at that point. And everything suddenly became three D, didn't it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. It was it was a game changer, and in terms of development, we uh, you had to suddenly develop a whole set of new skills. So, um, not only been able to create really good looking 3d environments and 3d models that go in the environment then you then you had to become a painter you had to be able to draw texture maps to put onto those models but then it became a real art in itself that you could you pseudo shade and create you know really stunning looking um objects from quite a rudimentary tool set
3: it was a really good game because you know it had all the different kind of campaigns as well you know yeah that was, that was
0: yeah that was a big move up um for tfx and it was also similarly uh, mirrored at that time we had a a parallel development with a game called inferno so not only was it um a a combat game um tfx so it we we wanted to layer on a campaign around it so it wasn't just a, a linear progression which the previous games were do this mission move on to the next mission there was um A a flow to it. It branched off. You could do different missions at different times. There were there were different uh, consequences, and therefore you would play, you know, a different playthrough every time because of how you you progress through these different paths in the game. So it really sort of started taking um, our games, and at that time it was what was happening within the industry. The games were becoming a lot more. Deep in terms of the experience and in the ways that you played them dictated uh, the outcome.
1: So another game that you know around this time that, that that never got a release, Lethal Encounter was supposed to be like the big flight sim for the Nintendo 64. What happened with that then?
0: Ah, right. So um, so the memory serves me well. This is this is when we started looking at uh, console markets. So we. Um, we were developing at the time we, we had a 3d engine a lot of the uh, the 16-bit consoles uh, home entertainment systems nintendo um <clears throat> sega excuse me sega mega drive etc you know weren't geared up for doing 3d graphics um but then there were a few that came out and there were some of them that weren't re- um, released so we we worked on um, a hasbro um gaming console Uh, We started looking um, early doors at the the Nintendo 64. So we started um, developing this is when this is later on in the 90s. Um, So we'd, we'd, we'd grown the studio. So we could start doing multiple projects at the same time, and I was working on lethal encounter um, and it was it was our first sort of foray into console gaming um, and we developed uh, a couple of prototypes um, we had our game design um, approved by Nintendo and we were in development um, on lethal encounter but um, through resourcing and through our commitment to the larger um, Flight sims that we were creating at the time, we decided to to uh, leave the console market and just concentrate on the the PC gaming with the flight simulations. How far along did the project get in the N64? Then is, is there still
1: anything you've got, like any prototypes or anything?
0: Um, I might have a cartridge somewhere in in, in the loft. Um, I don't know if it would still work, but yeah, it was it was a really interesting concept. It was uh, again it, a few um influences from inferno and uh epic where there was a you know a, a, a space uh, um invasion into the on, onto the planet earth and you were a, a commander of multi terrain uh, military combat vehicle which was going into these different antiquity sites around the world such as angle Wat and the great pyramids and then against these backdrops there was a a, a combination of um arcade shooting gameplay and puzzle solving, where you had to manipulate the environment to get through to the uh, the end goal. So it was a quite an interesting combination of a lot of different gaming styles. And I think maybe uh, the ambition of it was uh, a little bit of ahead of its time, or a little bit of the head of our resourcing. Do you remember when you first saw an N64 prototype? Then that must have been pretty impressive. <laughs> oh yeah it was again it was it was a such an exciting period in development every console that came out um, had an amazing step change and i remember uh, the n64 coming out and seeing the you know the potential of the graphics and it really hits home when the first launch titles came out i remember pl- uh, playing golden yeah. on the n64 like obsessively for months and you actually using two controllers and two of the analog sticks in it either hand to control the game and it was uh um, yeah it was it was it was an amazing step change like i say do you think fight
3: simulators are going to kind of make a little comeback.
0: Um, I don't know it, it it's it was it was a moment in time in the 90s but the uh, the ability to render a 3D environment And it it really, um, the the genre really sort of lent itself to the technology at the time. You could create these massive vistas and you could fly over them. And there was a a lot of people interested in, you know, wannabe pilots. You had the peripherals, you had the the controllers and the joysticks to play these games. Um, But then as the, you know, the the hardware and the, the graphics processing got a lot better and Games became more narrative driven and different genres of games came out. They did sort of like um, age pretty quickly and there were more interesting and exciting uh, games to play. But there are, you know, there's still some hardcore fans out there enjoying flight simulations. And and recently I've seen a few flight simulations coming out on uh, in the new Virtual reality platforms. Not quite sure about the comfort levels with them flying around <laughs> in, um, in, in a VR helmet, but um, yeah, I mean, there's there's um, there's always a, a, a fan base there for them.
3: Yeah, what's that Euro truck simulator that everybody's always yeah, playing? Yeah.
1: You know? <laughs> well, you think, you know, yeah, modern, it's modern it's... consoles, I mean, you know, the technology like the PS4 and the Xbox One, they've got analog controllers and that. You think they do a really good flight sim?
0: Yeah, it's not. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. Maybe it's uh, down to the developers or so maybe the the market's not there. But yeah, maybe, maybe we're, we're spotting a gap in the market. We maybe should uh, start dusting off the old code and <laughs> you know, produce, produce a flight simulation one more time. I think for us, actually, when we. When we uh, left Digital Women's Design and set up Evolution Studios, um, I think we'd had, uh, a, a, you know, a, a belly's worth of flight simulations. I think we'd worked we'd, on nine. There was a few different SKUs of um, F-22, uh, Total Air War. Uh, so, yeah, we, we were quite happy to move away from flight simulations and start working on racing simulations.
1: Well, talking about the end of our DID, I mean, was that with, with the Infogrames takeover of Ocean? How, how did that all happen then? What, what, was, what was that time like?
0: okay well it was yeah a very interesting time um i 'd have to be careful you know um, what what i what I revealed but as from my point of view it was um it was a transition um that came from the acquisition of ocean by infograms, so like i said earlier on, ocean had a twenty five percent stake in digital image design so over overnight we were twenty five percent owned by infograms, so infograms came in. And they wanted a totally different relationship uh, than we had with Ocean. Essentially, it was very, a very uh, mutually beneficial relationship with Ocean, especially for us as the developers. It was quite relaxed. We could create our own IPs. We developed the, the software at our own pace, and we delivered quality games and they sold really well. Infogrames wanted a lot more structure, you know, a lot more processing, in processes in the milestones, milestone payments, and it, it st- there was a lot of tension straight away, and they basically wanted to dictate the output of the studio, um, and that didn't really sit very well with, uh, with ourselves, especially with Martin, um, and it, over a number of months, the relationship became increasingly strained, it's, uh, it's probably a polite way to put it. Mm. And um, I think over the course of, I think it was uh, maybe a, a game show that we were over, maybe it had been um, a CES or an E3 at the time, of, that um, we came back and there was an article saying that um, Martin had left the, the studio, which was uh, a piece of propaganda created by Infograms. And uh, they sort of um, aggressively manufactured um, him to sell the company.
1: Wow.
0: So yeah, we uh, yeah it was one day we were we were working for DID, and the next day we weren't. We were we were setting up again Evolution
1: Studios. Well, tell us about the start of Evolution then. Um, how how did that kind of come about then? Together, uh, you guys
0: as part of the Severn Steel um, Martin um, obviously. I took a, a, a substantial amount of money. He also was uh, he took the the source code and also a number of key individuals myself included and there were six of us with Martin and we set up evolution studios in 1999 and using the diddler Bengin, uh we created a prototype demo of, of a racing game we were all Pretty interested in motorsport, driving cars fast was probably the easiest way of saying what we enjoyed. Um, And we wanted a change. We wanted to move away from the flight simulations uh, and do something a bit different, but something that took all the knowledge that we'd learned with the flight sims. So physical-based engines, really good graphics, really Great attention to detail with with the simulations, and but apply that into the racing format. And we we took this um, prototype down to ECTS in London in 1999, which was uh, I think it was still uh, Earl's Court at that time. And we went round to this demo and we showed it to a number of uh, publishers. I think at the end of the second day, we had uh, offers of um, I think from the ten of the top publishers in 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 the world to develop a. a A racing game for them and the top of the list was sony and sony had recently acquired a license for the world rally championship Mm -hmm. and they commissioned us to create six games uh, for the wrc license over a number of years and we started working on playstation 2 development the ps2 must have been like a really powerful platform to, to work on at the time then Oh It was mind blowing. You know, <laughs> we'd gone, we'd gone from, you know, the 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 PC that uh, the the fastest graphics card on the PC wasn't getting anywhere close to what the the PlayStation Two could do with its bespoke chipsets and um, the the processing power that it had. And again, we we had to we had to go through another learning curve. We had to learn what the the console could do. We had to learn uh, how to create the graphics. We had uh, ambitions to create uh, a driving game that no one had ever seen before. And again, we took great influences from our flight simulation days and we produced these massive sprawling uh, worlds and environments which were basically flight sim environments and we stuck a road down the middle of them and drove a rally car down it and it was uh, it was nothing like anybody had seen before and it really uh, was a game changer in um, racing game technology.
1: Well, by the middle of the 2000s, obviously, you know, you guys had had a lot of experience with doing racing games by then, and MotorStorm was one of the first, uh, well, I think it was, a, it was a launch racing title on the PS3, wasn't it?
0: It was. The opportunity came from the success of the WRC games on PS2, and we had this uh, record. Every year, we delivered a top quality and um, rally game, but it was always a step up. We always added more content, the fidelity of the graphics got better, and that progression of uh, development was obviously seen by sony and they said you know they offered us a launch title opportunity on playstation 3 which is a uh, once in a career opportunity when mm. you when you uh, have an opportunity to uh, have the attention of the world and a new console comes out the playstation 3 was massive launch and to be one of a handful of titles and i think for the first 15 weeks on playstation 3 motorstorm was a global number one um So, yeah, it was, again, a massive learning curve for the studio. Uh, For all the people involved, we had to, again, Learn what we could do with this new hardware, the way that it could it could render these amazing graphics, and we could really sort of start pushing the envelope of what we could do. But it was it was a step up to HD, mm. so it was twice no four times as many pixels, uh, which meant four times as much work. So at that time, um, we had I think it was like 120 staffs uh, in the studio. So thinking back all the way down to the beginning of the story. It, Digital image Design. There was there was three of us in a bedroom, and then we moved into an office. There was four, five, six of us working on Robocop, and uh, Epic at the time up to a 120 man studio. And then there's a lot of overhead in terms of um, you know managing teams, production meetings, and it you know becomes a totally different beast at that time. But yeah, fantastic opportunity, and uh, MotorStorm was um, a, a massive success. So much so that um, Sony bought the studio.
1: Yeah, well, you, you worked for them for a few years, didn't you? How was that working there then?
0: That was an interesting challenge. <laughs> I'll put I'll put that personally for myself. I was um, very used to it at that time. I, know, I think it was 2007. So I was I've been in the industry 17 years. We were an independent studio over both digital design and evolution. So always the masters of our own destiny, very agile, very quick to react to the situations that were always put in front of us. And in software development, it's very difficult to plan everything ahead. So you have to be quite reactive. Moving into the Sony infrastructure, um, it became... Quite frustrating for myself as a creative, and at that time I was um, game director, creative director on MotorStorm, MotorStorm Pacific Rift, a sequel, and we um, we would spend quite a lot of time in, in management meetings and green light meetings and discussions. And for me, I just wanted to make the game, so I just wanted to get in there and sort of produce and create and get the game out. And it, it became very frustrating for me, and uh, subsequently that's why I, I decided to take a break from the industry for a couple of years. Um, just for just my own sanity, really. So um, you've kind of taken a break. What are you up to nowadays? I had a, I had a couple of years off. I did a bit of teaching, Uh, Teaching video game design and art creation, um, which was a a fantastic experience of giving something back, uh, all this knowledge uh, that I'd acquired over the years. Um, And you had these young um, students, very excited, you know, great passionate um, gamers and spending time with these, uh, these these young people really got fired up my enthusiasm again I'd, I'd almost fell out of love with video game creation because of what happened at the the final days um at sony and all of a sudden i was like this is quite exciting i want, I want to get back into the industry and um it, i had a few interviews with some big studios nothing really came of it and then um, martin chemright phones me up again like he did when i was 17 years old saying i've got a video game studio do you want to do some graphics for me which i think at the time i thought it was a bit of a he was taking the michael but um it tr- turned out to be true and in um 2013 i got a similar phone call and um, we're setting up another studio uh, which was called starship at the time um and he said uh, we, we started making uh, video games on mobile devices we launched a game called play world superheroes at the beginning of 2014 on uh, smart devices mobile which was almost going back to the beginning again you know from the big console development going back to a mobile game you sort of hark back to the smaller platform the smaller development team the more agile development a lot more creative um, and yeah we, we started uh developing games we had a number of ips uh, which we developed one of them was a cooking simulator which was interesting not necessarily a, a gamified cookery simulator and at that time we started getting involved with the new vr technology that was coming out so oculus approached us with the gear vr and we converted the cooking simulator which was called cyber cook onto uh, the Gear VR which came out at the beginning of uh, 2014 and um, subsequently since then we've pivoted the development uh, solely onto VR and we now um, are coming up to our first birthday launch of um, a VR social network called Vtime. You know, we're, we're um, in an exciting time again right now. So all the way through uh, from the early 90s pioneering visuals on the 16-bit Atari ST Amigas, early graphics cards on the PCs, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, and now virtual reality, I've been very, very lucky to be on the riding crest of the wave of uh, new technologies. So, you know, it's, uh, it's been a, an amazing journey that's still continuing to this day.
3: Well, yeah, definitely riding the crest of new technology because I've seen this V time absolutely everywhere, and um, <laughs> kind of people have used this as an example of what Facebook going on to virtual reality would be like. So yeah, we
0: yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting. Um, I was at the uh, Oculus Connect conference a couple of weeks ago in San Jose, and Mark Zuckerberg was on stage doing a demonstration of his vision of social VR, what it's going to look like, and um, it was interesting because they were showing this demonstration, and we've been out for 11 months. So we're, we're actually ahead of Facebook and Oculus, and the uh, CTO of uh, Oculus. John Carmack, obviously, legend, as we know. Yeah. Uh, in his closing keynote, he said he was jealous uh, of V-Time. So, great accolade <laughs> from a great man. Um, but, yeah, it's an exciting time. We, we have the drop on Facebook at the moment, um, and we're trying to keep ahead.
3: Excellent. Well, keep up that cutting edge. It's been wonderful yeah. to talk to you, Paul.
0: Oh, thank you. I've been a real pleasure. It's It's been... Um, Enjoyable trip down memory lane for me.
1: And if people want to find out what you're up to today, is there a website or anything they can go to?
0: Absolutely, you go to vtime.net. You can see all the latest news on vtime. And I'm actually in, I'm actually in the studio right now. Some things never change. We've just, we're doing an update tomorrow, so we've just had pizza, standard development uh, dinner fair and uh, yeah, there's a number of guys in the studio that I've been working with since the early nineties, Ian Boardman. Um, Martin Kemright, you know, there's a few guys that you know we're still still plodding along, the old dinosaurs of the industry, still going strong.
1: <laughs> well, let's get back to work then, Paul. Thank you so much for talking to
0: us. No problem. Take care. <laughs>